Hello World, retrieving Brad and Christy from the cloud. Hi, I'm your host, Brad Rayford. And I'm Christy Hornlin. Welcome to the Risk Factors Perspectives in IoT podcast. And today we're speaking to Mike Krajewski, Managing Director at KPMG US about hospitals of the future. It's time to get out of the waiting room and into the podcast now. Mike, we want to thank you for joining us here on the show. Um, We've been doing some research, have some interesting things to talk to you about today. We're very excited for today's episode, uh, focusing on hospitals of the future, right? And I, in particular, am very intrigued by hospitals of the future because I have a huge hospital and medical procedure phobia. Anyone in my family and most of anybody who's ever been around me uh, will tell you that I don't like shots, needles, the idea of medical procedures. I'm a big guy. I pass out. Not ashamed to admit it, right? I pass out when I get shots. I have to tell the nurses I'm going to lay down. If there's a floor, I will lay on the cold tile of the floor. And they look at me funny, but you know what? I like it. So growing up, I used to read popular science. And I remember this one article about doing away with the hypodermic needle. And I was blown away. Not that the options were any better, because it was like, we could pick you, prick you with one of these needles or some alternatives. We could use a small blast of air to blow a hole in your skin and then deposit the medicine. Sounds painful. Or a grid of micro needles. So instead of stabbing you one time, we're going to stab you 5,000 times. I would like to say I've gotten over my fear of needles. Uh, I haven't. But thinking of what medical care could look like, how hospitals could operate, and what are the technologies driving those innovations, and how those innovations are being adopted and utilized is something I'm fascinated with. So I'm excited to have you here, Mike. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I love your intro there. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there actually is a a startup right now that is creating a microneedle band-aid to be able to administer vaccines with kind of zero pain, zero touch, literally put a Band-Aid on your shoulder, five minutes later, you rip it off and you're vaccinated. Um, I saw a demo of it at a, a conference a few months ago. I was blown away. Are they, do they need investors? I will sell <laughs> literally everything I own if I never have to get another shot again. Yeah, That's how and the, the funny note is this conference had a, a few celebrities there. Um, Goldie Hahn went on stage and got the patch on her in front of wow. all of the whole audience. It was just um, a saline solution, so not an actual vaccine. Um, but she was like the, the test person for it on stage to prove how real it was. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, so what we've got uh, outlined for today, uh, we have some areas that we, we want to pick your brain on, if you're willing. And then we're hoping that we can just pepper you with some questions uh, and have you teach us a little bit about what you're seeing in the marketplace, what are the coming trends that we should be aware of uh, and and evolve the conversation from there. Uh, So as Christy and I were going through our planning, uh, we found a few different types of technologies that are currently being incorporated into into the medical space, into hospitals, into patient care, right? So there's 5G that's being used for telehealth, telesurgery, remote monitoring of patients. There's AI, radiography, planned exposure, uh, scanning efficiencies, holography, which I went down the rabbit hole on this one. It's a little bit of like Star Trekky to me, so we'll we'll breeze through that one for now. But holography is is out there, 
And then things like augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality for patient care, for reading scans and other things like that. Uh, are there any others that you've seen that we can add to the list uh, before we dive into them? I would add computer vision as its own category. I think it's a kind of a hybrid of some of those you mentioned, but there is a lot of things happening in that space. Okay. For, the, for those listening, would you mind giving a brief description of what computer vision is? Yeah, yeah. Computer vision, um, it's, it's actually just what it sounds like. It's the ability for, for technology and software to be able to use cameras and sensors to see much like a person, but at a much higher level of precision and be all seeing, all knowing. Um, you know, the most relatable example um, is probably how modern cars are able to you know, keep yourself in the lanes and do adaptive cruise control. You know, most current vehicles have those things. If you look at like what Tesla's doing with kind of pseudo autonomous driving, that's all computer vision technology. It's using sensor fusion to interpret physical surroundings so a device can make decisions. Um, in healthcare, um, that's being used um, in multiple ways, but predominantly with cameras and patient rooms, being able to provide 24 seven monitoring of certain types of patient conditions that a nurse or other types of technology just wouldn't be able to see as quickly. Okay. This reminds me of uh, a number of years ago, right before, so I have three kids, seven, five, ooh, almost got that one wrong, seven, five, and three. Um, and when, when we were waiting for our second son to be born, our five-year-old, uh, there was this post I read or an article about using computer vision not simply for the monitoring purposes, but as uh, a magnification of movement. So it would, if a, a chest during a breath rises and falls three centimeters, it would exaggerate that movement in its presentation to make it much quicker to see, is this patient breathing? Right now, the measurement was still as fine as computer vision can go, but the presentation to the human was exaggerated. So I can see in an instant across a panel of, of monitors, all my patients are breathing or all of the babies are, are doing well. Same thing with movement. And it was a very fascinating use of computer vision, but it sounds like what you're saying, uh, computer vision is actually evolving to where it's not just a presentation layer for a human user, but the machine, the computer itself is using its own vision to dictate next actions and to uh, self ambulate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the um, startups that we've been partnering with is a company called VirtuSense. Um, they they make a computer vision product that um, its first use case is fall detection. Um, one of the um, major risks when you're hospitalized, especially for elderly patients or those that have had like hip or knee replacements, um, is the risk of falling. That's why if you're in the hospital, they make you wear those real fashionable socks and things like that, because it's a real problem that they have and it increases length of stay. It is legal liability to them. Um, so these cameras, just to your point about exaggerating movements, um, they've, they've trained these models with a number of algorithms to detect certain movement patterns that indicate the patient is stirring, they're uncomfortable, they're at a higher likelihood to be getting out of their bed or their chair. Um, and they actually use like a very kind of simple green, yellow, red in terms of where the patient is in their movement. Um, and they could basically detect, I think it's like 60 to 90 seconds before a patient actually would fall, the likelihood of them falling. Um, so while that isn't a lot of time, if you have a patient that's at a high risk for a fall, it's enough time for a nurse or some other assistant to get in the room and help the patient and prevent that fall from happening. Or worst case, 
you know, 60 to 90 seconds, if you've had a hip replacement or a knee replacement, that's 60 to 90 seconds of bleeding internally that you can cut down on, right? Yeah, no, that's, a good, that's a good point. I mean, because even if they can't prevent the fall, they can actually alert you when the fall happens. So, so to your point, you have more of an instantaneous response versus any lag in that. I mean, that sounds like, when do, when do I get that from my house? Because I feel like I fall quite a lot and not that I need help getting up, but I just want to, I want my wife to know. I fall we, we actually have a demo kit at Lake House if you want to check it out from that, yes. from that same vendor. Um, yes. um, but I, but I think, I think for you, they make one of those buttons around your chest to fall. I can't get up. That's probably oh. not suitable for your style. I want it, but I want it in the Steve Urkel voice. <laughs> yeah. I fall and I can't, I won't do it. I won't uh, do the impersonation. Uh, I'm still waiting for, for Apple or Amazon to have Urkel as a Alexa or Siri voice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let, well, let me ask this, uh, what was our original starter question? Uh, which emerging technologies from either those we've listed or those that you've seen, do you think are having the most significant impact on innovation in the healthcare environment? Yeah. I, I think if you polled the audience in terms of leading health providers, they would unanimously say AI. Um, at this point, it's the emerging technology that has become, in many ways, mainstream. It still is a long way to go, but most health, most health systems are using forms and facets of AI. Um, and it's really um, covering the gamut of, of the care continuum. It's doing everything from helping patients you know, get schedules faster by using AI scheduling behind the scenes, um, chat bots to help patients get information quicker. Even those types of things go a long way in the patient experience. Um, in the clinical setting, um, leading institutions are using AI to create algorithms that allow them to better monitor their patients. The most classic example is being able to detect sepsis, you know, 12, 24, 48 hours before the onset of the symptoms. So you can actually take some mitigating actions to prevent sepsis from occurring. Um, there's just a, a whole world of, of AI that, you know, if you look back historically in healthcare, it was a lot of really, really smart, highly trained people looking at vast amounts of records, data, imagery, physical examinations and using their training and experience to come up with a diagnosis and a care pattern. Um, that's wonderful. And fortunately, doctors are some of the smartest people in the world. But even those people could use help from technology to aggregate all that information, make sense of this data, aggregate data, not just for one patient, but across many, many patients and build models and predictive predictivity. Um, I, I think the potential for that to change the way that we actually move towards precision medicine and prescriptive insights is very powerful. Um, I, I've stopped or I've tried to stop using the term artificial intelligence in, in, um, in a healthcare setting because I feel like it, it disrespects some of the, the clinical expertise. Um, instead, it's like augmented intelligence. You're never gonna artificially replace a doctor, but you can augment them with data and insights to make them do their job better or to help them do their job better. So once upon a time, there was a show and the name escapes me. Uh, but going back to your example of diagnosis, augmented intelligence uh, leading into diagnosis. It, and granted, this was a fantasy show, but it was about a future hospital funded by a, a billionaire. And they had this computer system where all of the residents and all the, the physicians would gather and they would examine their patients and use this, what looked like a decision tree algorithm uh, to determine with a high degree of probability what the diagnosis was for any particular patient. 
And at the time, novel concept, looking at it in reality, it's a lot more complicated than that to arrive at a diagnosis. But the way they were able to demonstrate, here's how a computer can help doctors not only achieve results, diagnosis results faster, but be more consistent across the board. Examine and figure out what are the actual variables that matter when determining it, when coming to a diagnosis, right? Because there's a lot of a lot of screenings, a lot of tests that provide data. Not all the data is going to be useful, but you don't know it until you have it, right? And that's that's one of the aspects of experience that we would see in, in uh, a well-traveled physician, let's say, or a doctor who's had time and time again to see a see a condition see the different variables and work out in their own mind space, what are the common threads that tie it all together? Having to be able to take that out of a, a senior physician's head, put it into a model and say, tell me that first validate it, that these assumptions are correct, and then let's repeat it. So now first year med students have access to the experience of a 60 year veteran in, in the field. Uh, I think that's a phenomenal thing. It's also very scary. I imagine there's a lot of people to your point who, may not like the term artificial for a lot of different reasons, right? One of them to, in, in my mind being that they go in for artificial hips, which depending on the outcome, some people say, uh, you know, my hip or my knee or whatever got, got replaced feels better than it ever did, even when I was younger. And some say, I will never be the same again, right? So there's a lot of, uh, it's a loaded word, artificial, but I, I like the, the, concept, the concept of augmented intelligence, providing the physicians with that assisted data layer that helps them achieve outcomes better, faster, more efficient, and more accurately. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't, I think some industries view AI as, you know, replacing jobs. I I don't think that's the case in healthcare. I, I think there's so much operational burden, administrative burden on health providers today. Physician burnout is as high as it has ever been because of the pandemic the more tools that we can leverage through technology to help them do their jobs better, faster, easier, um, that's paramount right now. I feel like too, one of the things that you hit on is really that there still needs to be a source for that data. And so it never really stops being at the end of the, say practitioner to actually go through and say, do diagnosis on different patients, but really it's more so looking at this from the lens of like, what's the best part of academia? It is that open source set availability of data sets to find those patterns. And I think, like you said, having something that's there to augment, to assist with pattern recognition and alerting is something that is extremely valuable. Absolutely. And we're seeing that play out a lot in the radiology space where that's like the natural starting point where if you have a chest x-ray, it looks the same more or less (laughs) for individuals. There's lots of nuance and variation, but you can definitely train computer models to detect that variation, to look for, um, the easiest thing to do is actually to to clear somebody as having a a benign scan or uh, no, no results basically, because you can tell if it's clean or not. That saves like 80% of the reviews that a technician would have to go through because the, the system is, is sorting through all that noise for you and then allowing you to spend more time on the more complicated images versus you know, going through potentially dozens or hundreds of images a day. So that brings, me, that brings us to a good talking point around uh, AI radiology or AI-supported radiology. Right, so there's there's a couple of things when I think of radiology. There's obviously the radiology techs 
right? The ones who set you up in the room, position whatever machine you're going to be in, X-ray, MRI, CAT, uh, and they position the machine, position you, position the film. Hopefully they get it all right. And when they go to take the capture, they're capturing the right segment of you with the right level of depth. You didn't move. I've been in MRIs before. I know it's hard to sit still for 30 minutes in a machine that's thumping and thumping over you. Uh, and worst case, you have to redo a whole bunch of scans, right? It's costly. You're bombarding yourself with radiation. And you're, like you said, you're generating a lot of noise that a radiologist has to then sort through and say, okay, of these 15 images that were taken, eight of them are garbage because they either didn't capture the right part or whatever, or you know they got to redo a 30-minute scan because you moved and that messed up one of the slices. So using AI, there's, there's a couple benefits uh, that I see. Uh, one being the, the, the planning uh, scanning efficiency. Right, so understanding having an having AI model tell you based on what you're trying to scan for, what are the optimal vectors to to capture, what are the verti- or the axes that you want to capture from, and if I think far enough in the future, maybe there's a model that learns your own anatomy better, so it can tell based on your patient record where your where certain parts of your body sit internal to you, right? So even more precise uh, every time you go. The other being the radiation exposure, right? That's a, a great benefit. Uh, I don't want to have a third eye pop out when I'm 70 because I, had to, <laughs> I couldn't sit still on an x-ray. Um, but we, you said earlier that AI is not about replacing jobs or it's, it's not a, a prime risk or a fear that, that should be validated in the space. But given how does it transform what the radio techs and the radiologists do if what the bulk of their job that they're doing now is replaced by AI? Well, I, I think it allows them to focus more on the more complex scans. Um, there's a term called operating at the top of your license, right? So, you know, you'd be operating at the, the bottom of your license if you're just going through simple scans every day with no complexities and they're very basic, but someone still has to look at them. You can potentially go go days of your job with out identifying anything that is meaningful or driving towards better outcomes or better you know, care pathways. What if you were spending more time focused on that, um, on those patients that needed your focus? Um, there's been models or studies out there that have shown that the AI models for radiology are actually more accurate in terms of um, preventing misreads. Like you're more, the phrase that correctly, I think you're more likely to have a human make an error in terms of reading something and saying it's benign, it's negative versus the system doing that because the system's been trained with very specific guardrails, very conservative levels that if something doesn't make sense, they almost always kick it back to a human where a human just could be having a bad day. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of benefit there of having that augmented assistance to a radiology tech. And it it probably will change the way they do their jobs, but hopefully they'll be more effective. Um, hopefully they can read scans in a shorter period of time. Um, we, we've, you know, if you've had an MRI before, it's also frustrating that why does it take three to four days for my doctor to get my results, right? Like, why can't that be one to two hours or 24 hours? Like, and I think that's largely because there's a giant backlog in here. So what if we can use this again, you know, to make the overall healthcare experience less friction, less costly? Um, this all kind of contributes to that. 
That's, that's a great point. And one thing I'd like to point out is that a lot of these scanning technologies remain unchanged and have like x-rays are x-rays. They haven't really changed how an x-ray functions uh, other than digitizing the film. So shooting directly onto a digital uh, sensor, but it's still the same process. The MRIs and CTs, uh, computer-assisted tomographies, uh, and they compile an image based on all the different slices that they're taking uh, images of, right? That's still computationally uh, expensive. It still requires a lot of time for compute time for the computer to do its job. And while that's happening, you know, the doctors are trying to process more patients. I remember when I got my MRI, like you said, it took, I think at the time, five days to get my scan results back. And I had to wait at home for that. But it also took me six hours of waiting to get my MRI done. I waited six hours to sit in a machine for 30 minutes uh, on the low end. I ended up sitting for about an hour and a half because I couldn't, I couldn't not fidget. Uh, so there is, there's a lot of efficiencies to be gained there and ultimately more patience to be seen, right? Like you said. So I think what I, what I like about AI radiography is that it not, it not only allows physicians to operate at the top of their license, but it allows more patients to receive the care that they're due and that they, they are expecting from their healthcare providers. I, I'll, I'll offer one more angle too that might be overlooked here is it also offers different potential revenue streams. So radiology images are a very um, complex image set. If you've not seen one before, they're called a DICOM file. They could be very large in size, like upwards towards a gigabyte, many slices, many different views, lots of annotation. Um, those files are actually have a, a true value in the open marketplace in terms of clinical research, um, because you're able to look at various scans, whether it's brain CTs or pulmonary, um, cardiac type scans, where you're able to put those in the clinical studies and determine like variation and care routines, what worked, what didn't, what have you. Um, today though, to get those DICOM files, radiology files into those studies, it largely takes a human to go through that file and de-identify it, strip out all that PHI, all that, all that personal health information. There's tools that do it, but the tools themselves, are you kind of got to go file by file. They're a little cumbersome. Um, one of the things that we're doing right now is we're working with a large health system to use um, some cloud native components and use AI in the cloud. Um, you're able to send radiology images to a modern cloud platform, use AI algorithms to automatically de-identify the file, and then create basically packages that are pre-made for clinical trials. So I have a hundred patients who meet this type of complex diagnosis. Give me the radiology images. I'll automatically de-identify them, package them up, and now you have an asset that can either be used for an internal research, sell it to a clinical trial, sell it to a pharmaceutical firm. Um, that's a real opportunity that that's present right now. I think what's really interesting there is Brad and I have had a discussion on the side about this, which is, you know, there has been, say, siloed data sets across the different hospitals, across different organizations that may be interacting with patients. And so when you're looking at the data sets that you're mentioning might be coming available, what we've seen is that that kind of cloud structure that you're talking about, what they're going out and doing, it sounds like, is that they've got the lineage happening in the background. So first, you create a lineage between the different patient data that you have so you can have your diagnosis. And then when you de-identify, you remove some of those uh, personal 
attributes such as like social security number, anything that would actually trace back to the individual, um, you are able to then suddenly have, I was mentioning earlier, that kind of open source academia point of view, because one of the biggest struggles I think that we kind of hear from our side, as well as just like a patient, you're thinking, do you really, do you really know me? Do you know my, my community, my background? And so getting larger sets of data, I'm assuming that's kind of the pull of this, right? It's just to get even more of the global community present rather than just one point of view. Absolutely. You're, you're spot on. And your, your phrasing of the word lineage there is actually spot on because the goal here is not just to take anonymize your x-ray scans or MRI scans, but it's to tie that to patient records. So you know about their demographics, you know about their family history, their genetics, uh, tying that to the, radiolo the radiology images. That's kind of like the holy grail of research right there, because you have a full complex view of a being um, and you're able to compare that to others in similar situations and come up with that real drive towards precision medicine, treat you as a unique individual, not as a category. No, oh, I, I just find it very interesting because I think the the augmented, say, augmented experience that patients get now, I, I think one of the biggest draws of it is really just the availability of data and what we could do with it. So obviously you have to have some ethical parameters around how you're going about, you know, what is our source as we're going through here, but it is very interesting to see the availability of data sets really for at the end of the day, the whole thing is to to treat the individual. Like that's the holy grail, as you said. So Mike, I want to jump. We've, we've spent quite a lot of time on AI and thank you for indulging me. It's, I have a fear of robots uh, taking over the world, irrational as it may be. Uh, and talk a little bit about 5G. What if, what if we had robots covered in needles? That would be like your worst oh, nightmare, right? man. <laughs> You should write horror novels. You would be, I mean, I would be your biggest uh, supporter in those. I wouldn't read any of them, but I would buy all of them. Um, but let's, I want to jump to, to 5G. And we live in this, this post-pandemic pandemic world. Uh, I myself, I've had the same GP general practitioner for the past uh, 17 years. Right, she's been my doctor for 17 years, knows my whole medical history. I used to see her all the time in office. And as we've gone through the pandemic, I've had the beginnings of telehealth, right? Seeing my doctor through my phone, her trying to assess certain physical conditions remotely. How are we seeing things like 5G adjust and accelerate telehealth, telemedicine, uh, and make it more accessible and meaningful for those that, that use it? Yeah, so... I'm very optimistic on the impact that 5G can have for healthcare. I think the power that it brings from a ultra low latency, from a bandwidth perspective, um, a lot of other kind of embedded security positioning type services, all natively wrapped in a wireless network that could be deployed with relatively minimal infrastructure compared to traditional networks. That's a recipe for success. Um, what I will now say, Brad, is I, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact to telemedicine, virtual visits. Um, and it's really kind of the problem that 5G is having right now because it, it's, it's sort of this, this solution looking for a problem because a lot of our current needs are solvable via Wi-Fi, via 4G LTE on our phones. Like you can video chat with your doctor over Wi-Fi just like we're talking right now. Um, 
you don't need 5G for that. Um, so the value proposition for 5G isn't going to come from things like that, but it, it's really about what lies next. Um, you know, when if you go back, I don't know, call it 10, 15 years when 4G was brand new, um, no one really knew how to take advantage of that until the Ubers of the world came along and invented businesses because our phones can now process so much more data and do so much more things in real time. So there was there was literal economies that were built upon. 4G being a key building block for that. Um, I expect to see similar things happening for 5G. Um, some of the examples might not be as, as kind of sexy or flashy as you think either with all this emerging tech talk, but it could be something as simple as, you know, there's a trend in healthcare of not building these mega campuses as much anymore because A, there's a lot of them and B, they're really expensive. And C, you want to have care closer to your patients. Um, so more community-based centers, ambulatory centers, outpatient clinics, things like that. Um, one of the most expensive parts though of building those, those facilities is the technology, the network infrastructure, running fiber, running coax, running ethernet, running all that through the building. It's costly to install, it's costly to maintain. Um, what if I can pay one of the operators to have 5G spectrum flowing through that building, put up three or four radios, you probably still need the fiber backhaul, but that's it. I mean, you're, you're looking at saving an, uh, a material amount on installing those networks. You're going to save a significant amount of managing and operating those networks because it brings into things like network as a service as a real viable option. Um, and then it creates this foundation for experimentation, because now you have the business case, the value proposition, all right, I can afford this now because it's replacing my traditional network, um, but now I can experiment on having all things connected, geo-positioned on the network, um, doing things like digital supply chain tied into a private 5G network, um, the connected operating room, right? The ability to have edge computing, low latency uh, computations happening all in a closed setting that today are, are either complicated or very, very costly. Um, the optics sort of shift when it's all on a private wireless spectrum like 5G. So when you talk about 5G replacing, just to put it in context, so when we think about how a, a traditional hospital floor plan, right? You've got like, we'll, we'll take a, a patient floor. So a nurse's station, you've got all the different patient rooms. Then you've got a, adjacent to that, you have your clinician rooms right? Your procedure rooms, all of those things have equipment. And then you've got your large diagnostic equipment, right? Your x-rays, MRIs, all of the other lab equipment. All of that stuff is connected to a network, depending on what the machine is, like a CT probably needs a higher bandwidth connection. So let's say it's connected via fiber. And let's say you have six of those in the building. Now you have six runs of fiber that are going to different rooms that you could then pull out of your building, replace with 5G connectivity and save on the cost of the fiber, the service of the fiber, the maintenance of the network. And as you said, that creates a, an investable base of dollars that you can put towards other things. So if we think about 5G, that's, that's almost like the foundations for accelerating innovation in, in Medcare, but not because 5G itself is innovative, but because it frees up capital, it frees up resources to then invest in other areas. Is that, is that yeah, what you're saying? I, I think that's a big part of it, that, that it shifts the economic model because the, the, the challenge of 5G being a solution looking for a problem is, you know, I can rattle off a hundred different use cases for 5G, but 
any one of those use cases by themselves is not going to pay for the cost of that asset, of that installation of that infrastructure. So either you're building this kind of collection of many, many use cases, probably dozens of use cases that kind of tilt the ROI, or you need to have some sort of capital replacement cost, like your traditional network. How can you reduce that cost so that your entry into 5G isn't at an investment, but now you gain this asset you can experiment on? Um, and, and I don't think that it's, you know, you use the example, which I think is, is hypothetical, obviously, about like replacing fiber going to MRI machines like that. And that might not be the most practical starting point because of the latency requirements and how critical those machines are. But think of something simpler as during the pandemic or even, you know, you know, post-pandemic, everyone who's in an inpatient setting, what are they doing? They're on their phones. They're, they're talking to their loved ones via, you know, Zoom, Skype, what have you. Um, the doctors are using telemedicine in room now, so they don't have to go to every room. They just pop into screen, say hi to their patients, check them out. Um, all of that bandwidth is crippling Wi-Fi networks. Um, even advanced Wi-Fi networks can't handle multiple you know, high-definition video streams you know, happening in every single patient room across the floor. Um, so even something like putting 5G in that place, it allows you to not run you know, Ethernet, multiple Ethernet drops to every single patient room. Um, you know, Wi-Fi is just continuously unreliable, no matter how many routers, repeaters you have. Even things like that are almost a low-hanging fruit that just make 5G so much more appetizable to put in. Interesting. I, I like that example. I mean, I know from, uh, not that I spend a lot of time in hospitals, given my fear of needles, uh, but the complications that come from streaming multiple high-def uh, feeds at one time I have in spades, you know, when my wife was working from home, uh, she was on WebEx all day, all day long. And then when my kids were home from school, there was at least one TV and an iPad streaming something on a Netflix or an Amazon or some type of service. And then there was little old me trying to have Teams meetings, <laughs> getting, getting the last of the bandwidth with my video cutting in and out and sometimes losing audio. So I, I can imagine at a much larger scale, when you're talking hundreds of patients that are that are using yeah. the Wi-Fi, their loved ones that may be in the room, trying to stream things because well, they're bored waiting for something or uh, you know whatever it might be, uh, and having that bog down the network that's preventing some of these uh, more critical services from happening. Correct, and and it's um, speed is one thing, um, and it, it's while it still has to be proven a bit with five G, but some of the upcoming updates to the protocol with things like network slicing and embedded quality of service really open up a world of possibilities where today on a traditional network, while you can do those things, it requires a lot of additional tools and services and just management power to do those things. And it's not as dynamic where 5G has this promise of dynamic network slicing. So if you wanted to quickly carve out a network that's only doing telemedicine devices or only doing your remote patient monitoring, you could do so very quickly create dedicated spectrum and allocate those devices all from the same console, all, all to the same commands. You can script that basically. Um, same thing with quality of service. If you're having certain points of the day where there are spikes in demand or you need to have, you, you need to prioritize telemedicine versus patients, um, you know, talking to loved ones at home, you can quickly shift quality of service, which on a Wi-Fi network today, that's very complicated to do. Um, those are all other promises that, that 5G brings to us. Um, you know, including the security side of it, right? We haven't touched on that yet, but the embedded security of 5G where it's not a Wi-Fi password or a certificate, but it's an actual SIM card in the device. Um, the device enrollment is much more secure 
the ability to hack or break into a, um, a cellular network is much more complicated than a Wi-Fi network. Um, so there's a lot of embedded security benefits as well. Yeah, you actually were reading Christy and I's mind. We were just uh, chatting in the background about pivoting pivoting to the cyber aspects here, right? 5G, what I like about 5G is that for, I don't wanna say it's been out for a long time, but it, it's not a recently de-stealth technology, right? It, it is out, it's in deployment, it's in use, but there haven't been any actual verified exploits of a 5G network that I know of, right? Uh, I remember when LTE got popped at Black Hat and DEF CON, right? It was real easy. They jammed that network and forced everybody onto 4G, which has a much lower security protocol, and they were able to crack forward. So kind of a workaround, but I haven't seen any legitimate attacks against a 5G network, right? So as you said, security on 5G, much better, uh, more sophisticated than you would get on a Wi-Fi network, which brings me to the next question of... Uh, at the top of the podcast, you mentioned uh, some organizations looking at AI in the cloud, right? And, and utilizing uh, data sets that are, that are being sent off-prem. Uh, we've talked about the sharing of data, making that more accessible and easier. As a patient, if I'm now using a cellular network or my hospital is using a cellular network, meaning my data is going off-site, right? Uh, for whatever I'm using it for, whatever the machines are, that, are, that are in the room uh, are doing, plus all of my scans are in the cloud, plus all of that data is potentially being shared with other providers or sold to universities or whatever it happens to be. How should I start to feel about the risks of a highly connected and interconnected uh, healthcare environment? Well, I'll take the optimistic view that I, I think as a regular patient consumer, you should be excited about these advancements because part of the reason why we're in this kind of horrible state of cyber breaches, especially in healthcare, is because we have this convergence of legacy systems, modern technology. It's this kind of web of non-interoperable devices that weren't made to work together that are all forced to operate. And no matter how much money you spend on your security program and your cyber posture, somebody with a will is going to find their way in. So if you're right. talking now about kind of wiping the slate clean, if you will, and saying those traditional networks, they served us well, but it's time for really modernizing what networks look like through private cellular networks. It's an, it's an opportunity to sort of recalibrate your, your kind of first line of defense from a security posture perspective. Um, and so I, I think it's actually a benefit. And to your point, Brad, um, 5G has proven to be quite resilient, um, resilient, and it's only going to improve as the protocol increases and as people learn to how to better deploy and manage those networks. Um, your point about cellular networks, like my data traversing on a cellular network, um, one point I just want to demystify, which is it's an often um, point that people raise, is that when we're talking about 5G for healthcare, we're not talking about the 5G you and I get from our phones as consumers. That, that's consumer-grade broadband, or consumer-grade cellular, excuse me. They, when we're talking about deploying in a healthcare setting, or really any commercial setting, manufacturing, what have you, we're talking about a private cellular network where they actually have their own private core, uh, meaning that they, while they, they grab spectrum from the operator, everything is operated on that local core, meaning it's actually an on-premise cell tower, more or less. It does not have to call back to the consumer-grade cellular networks. So you actually are getting more data sovereignty because it's you're fully controlling it within your own 
private cellular network. Um, to the point then about data in the cloud, um, it's a fair point. Um, you know, cloud can be very secure. Um, you know, personally, I trust you know Google, Microsoft, Amazon more at security than I trust almost any other organization. Um, <laughs> but 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 all of us know that cloud is only as good as who's configuring it. Um, so you need to have the right professionals trained to secure it in. You need to have the right professionals trained to secure and harden your cloud platform. Um, and if you do so, um, I think it's actually going to increase the, um, the security posture um, from traditional on-premise systems. Yeah, that was very well said. You know, not every organization can uh, has the luxury of having their own simian army to do all of their hardening and maintenance of their cloud platforms and, well, you know, CDNs. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And I, I, I do... I, I do like your point, uh, your distinction between consumer 5G and then the private networks that are 5G based, right? And I think that's a really good clarification point is that in, in the context of how these might be deployed in a facility, it's simply swapping out Wi-Fi for 5G, right? It's the same, the same premise, the same architecture. You know, when you use Wi-Fi, you're on a local network. Right? Only when you go out to something that's on the public internet or outside of your local network do you have to traverse an ISP. It would be the same for a 5G network, a private 5G network that's deployed in these facilities. So everything is still operating on the local area network, but using 5G as the protocol as opposed to a Wi-Fi. Yeah, that, 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 absolutely, that's correct. And I think we'll see a while before 5G fully replaces Wi-Fi, um, mostly because um, one of the burdens that 5G has is the device ecosystem or, or lack thereof. You know, there aren't too many devices that have 5G SIM cards in today outside of tablets, cell phones, and some laptops. But we really expect that to pick up pace. Um, I know personally that many of the large devi medical device manufacturers are working on 5G in their medical devices. A lot of health systems are starting to innovate with putting 5G in innovation labs or putting 5G in certain nursing units to be able to create those test beds. Um, so the time's coming. We're really at the cusp here. I think the next several years will really prove out that this is gonna be a real game changer for healthcare. Maybe one question to loop it back together. So you've, from an augmented intelligence perspective and the 5G perspective, both of those seem like they're, you know, one, operationally going to help with efficiencies and two, also open up opportunities to invest in other customer, like say patient uh, experiences. Do you think that in this hospital of the future, we'll actually see security as a value prop for the patients coming in or just kind of built into the DNA of what they expect? Yeah, I from a patient perspective, I, I hope it's an expectation. Um, it's it's quite sad if you if you think about it today that a we don't have good access to our data. Um, our data, while they say it's portable, it really isn't. I mean, if you wanted to look at your last six months of Amazon purchases, you can tell me in about five seconds. If I asked you to tell me your last six months of doctor's appointments, of prescriptions, of our, it might take you. 15 minutes to figure out how to log in, another 30 minutes to navigate it, if it's even there, and it's probably in two different portals and some of it's offline. It, it's such a mess today. Um, so I, I feel like it's already a pretty broken system. Um, and the fact that um, healthcare, last time I checked, continues to be the number one industry for cyber breaches and data theft, um, which has, there's a lot behind that. I'm not placing blame, but it's a fact. Um, 
I, I think we as as patients, as consumers, we would love to have more control over of our data. And going into an environment where I, I believe they have more control by using things like private 5G, by putting more data in, in kind of safe, secure cloud environments, I would feel a lot more comfortable with that. Um, and I am hoping that's where, where the world's headed. Well, Mike, this was a, a great conversation, radical even, right? In the, in the greatest of the 90s and early 2000s hip hop, radical and rad. I uh, appreciate your time. I look forward to the books about robots covered in needles. Um, I'll be sure to put that on my wish list on Amazon. Uh, so hopefully I'll be able to get those anytime soon. Uh, I'm, I'm actually going to publish it in virtual reality. Just so you can experience it Perfect. as well, Brad. So Awesome. That's exactly <laughs> what I was looking for. I was looking for the metaverse counterpart that enact, that acts the story out in front of me as I'm reading it. That's exactly what I wanted. How did you I know? I think that's a topic for your next podcast is audiobooks <laughs> in the metaverse. <laughs> it could be, could be. Well, Mike, thank you. It was a, it was a pleasure getting to talk with you today. Uh, and thank you for all the insights. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Thanks, Christy. Always great talking with you guys. Appreciate it.